You know, younger writers often have these sweeping ideas about like theme and symbol, and they're going to write the great American book about Freud or whatever. And really, the best fiction always starts small at the level of character and detail. Hi, welcome. Welcome to Writing Stories, your spot for conversations with contemporary authors about the struggles and triumphs of writing and publishing. On each episode of Writing Stories, we follow a book from an idea in someone's head to an object on a shelf. How are you? Jacinda, how's it going? My guest today is Jacinda Townsend. She is the author of the novel Mother Country, which was the winner of the Ernest Gaines Award, and Saint Monkey, winner of both the Janet Heidegger Kafka Prize and the James Fenimore Cooper Prize. She teaches at Brown University, and she just sold her next book, Trigger Warning, to Grey Wolf, so that should be coming out soon. I personally love Jacinda's work for its depth of feeling, its intricacy and specificity, the way that she creates such an immersive, affecting narrative with so many subtle layers of meaning packed into each paragraph. In this episode, we talk about both Saint Monkey and Mother Country. We talk about the possible connections between genius and social isolation. We talk about getting an agent, Jacinda has had four, (laughs) and about writing fiction as a coping mechanism. And Jacinda describes a time when her publisher asked her to change a major theme in her book. So, okay, so Jacinda Townsend, tell me what you were like as a child before you were a writer. Yeah, well, one thing is, I, I was kind of, I was an only child for 10 years. And I think one thing that that made me have to do is make imaginary friends. Um, I grew up in a really rural area at the time. It was a very rural part of Kentucky. Um, my mom, fortunately, she had taught me to read like really ridiculously early. Like I was still in diapers. And so I ha- I always had that too. I always had books and the characters in my books were my friends. So what did the kindergarten teacher think of you when you first went to school? <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, as you can imagine, I started early. I started a year early and then very quickly they accelerated me a grade after that. I was younger than people at all times. And, you know, it has taken me to adulthood to understand that probably people knew that. Was it in American fiction where they said geniuses are lonely? Yes, that is one of my favorite lines, you know, and it's funny, like in the movie, I feel like she she gives the reason as geniuses are unable to, I wrote this line down, um, geniuses are unable to accept the the sort of people around them, mm-hmm. but I think it's the other way too. You know, I think there's a causation thing. Like if you are one of these cloistered, isolated people, maybe that's what you, (laughs) maybe that's what you have to do. You know, if you're, if you're socially alone, you have to turn into someone who really works hard at whatever they're doing, you know? Hmm. So I don't know if, if that springs out of the thigh of Zeus necessarily, right? Springs If geniuses sort of spontaneously become geniuses and then become unable to sort of blend into other people's social flows, you know what I mean? I I think sometimes um, when people are socially isolated and they become trapped in their heads, 
they become what we think of of as genius. They become people who obsessively practice the piano and become, you know, prodigies, virtuosos. I, I was also often the only black kid in my school. It was horrible. So um, not only was I, the fir- uh, from, from pre-K to first grade, I was the only black kid at a fundamentalist Christian school in rural Kentucky. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It was, I mean, it, that that was a trauma I'm still talking about in therapy because people would say things like, I can't hold hands with you in the circle. People would say, I can't play with you. You know, my mom said, I can't play with you. Just like, yeah, all kinds of, it was kind of like being Ruby Bridges but without without people's feeling like I was, you know what I mean? I mean, she had like Robert Coles was her therapist that time. I had nobody. I couldn't tell. I felt like I didn't want to tell my mother because she was so pleased to put me in this school because it had such a good academic reputation. And, Mm -hmm. and I, even as a, you know, four-year-old, I kind of knew like I was not going to mess with that. You know what I mean? And, and so really had some very painful moments and had to um, really rely on this ability to just sort of step out of the side of the situation. And whether that be, I think now we might even call it mindfulness, you know, just really step out of the situation and, and float above it, float beyond it. She did put me in public school. Finally, something happened at the school. Like it was unrelated to that. It was, um, a, a chair fell on my head and they didn't tell her. And I got home and there was like a blood on my, in my hair. And she was like, what happened? And so she took me out like immediately, which is the thing my mom also. She always did. Like I went to 11 different elementary schools because she would just get mad. And like the next day I'd be somewhere else. (laughs) So you went to law school and then you got an MFA at Iowa. How did you start working on St. Monkey? When I was little, the the crime that that forms the backbone of that book actually happened. The, um, Mm -hmm. there were, there were some girls in my church who I knew and their father killed their mother. And their grandmother then had to raise them. And she was really too old to be raising three small children. And I think I always wondered, like, what was that like for all of these people? What was it like to be a kid in that situation? What was it like to be the grandmother? And so they then became characters in in my head, you know? And so Pookie, the, the novel really, Pookie was the first character I envisioned. Um, Audrey came later, even though I think she's the one that I probably feel closest to. Okay. So Pookie, so you had, you were kind of processing this somewhat traumatic experience that you heard about as a child. Later in adulthood. Um, and I'm very open about this, that I I was in a marriage that there was a lot of domestic violence in that marriage. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what I would have done if I wasn't able to escape a few hours every day into my novels. Um, I think that I can see, I don't know if readers can see that in my work, that there is this undertone of violence and, you know, like I've not been afraid to sort of write it on the page, you know, um, because it was what was kind of happening in my real life. And, 
I had to find a container for it. Um, you know, and even though like the, the violence I put on the page isn't the same violence by any means, but it, it, that, that feeling is what I was having in real life. People, you know, like the therapist I have now, even he's, he's always like, you've been through so much trauma. And I keep telling him at the time, I didn't experience it as trauma because I had really put it, you know, every morning I would wake up and write and I would just put it there, you know, and um, I was able to survive some really horrifically awful things because I put myself in another world two to three hours a day, you know, Mm. it's powerful, it's powerful stuff. And did you sign with your agent um, after you wrote one chapter of the book? Oh, okay. This is a long, complicated story. And mm-hmm. I think the, the the sort of lesson of this story is that an agent in a novel can happen all kinds of ways, right? So my first agent, I actually queried initially the agent I have now. This, this is a, an interesting story. The agent I have now. And she was going to take the novel on, but when she took it to Norton and somehow at the same time, Gail Hockman showed up, I had queried her too. And the people at Norton were like, oh, no, you should go with Gail Hockman. So Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Wales, who is now my agent, so graciously just stepped aside. This is a really interesting story. She just stepped aside. But I had cold queried her, you know, and she liked the book. I also I met an agent once at a conference. We hung out at a bar. And well, anyway, I'm on my fourth agent now. The agent I have now was that initial agent. And so I queried her about trigger warning. And I was like, are you interested? And she said, she actually said, she actually said no at first. And I was like, oh, come on. And then she said yes. And we just, we just sold it. So I saw that you just sold it, but wait a minute. You, you, you queried her and she said no. And then you wrote back and said, oh, come on. And then she said yes. In a manner of speaking, yes. <laughs> I queried her and she said something like, um, you know, that very polite no. Like, I'm not taking on new clients now. And I just pushed her and I said, you know, I, I would really love to work with you. I, I let some months go by. Okay. And I was like, you know, here's another draft of the novel if you would read it. And so she did and she liked it. And the rest is history. But agents can happen all sorts of ways. The I do remember where I had, I found the other agent at a writer's conference, actually. So why have you had four? Why did you leave the first one? Saint Monkey, the sales weren't, they weren't blockbuster sales, you know? And so I think my first agent wasn't interested. Um, and the second agent, um, we never actually shopped it. We worked together on Mother Country. This is Mother Country. We worked together for a couple of years and she just, um, we could just never come to an understanding about what it should look like, you know? And I, I mean, we both worked really hard, but in the end, she just felt like it wasn't going to go anywhere. Okay. Um, third agent, gosh, this is um, how to say this diplomatically. She <laughs> is a lovely person and a great agent. Okay. We have a major political difference Okay. about one issue. 
And I just, it's an issue that's deeply important to me. And I just couldn't work with her. And I told her and we parted ways like so graciously, but that was, that was hard. And then I have Elizabeth now. So. Okay. And so as somebody who's experienced several different agents, do you have any advice for writers who are looking for agents? Um, so I think most of us think about it in terms of the scarcity model, mm-hmm. but it is like dating. <laughs> There is not as scarce as you think. And you really need to, instead of, I think a lot of writers like go with the first person who looks at them cross-eyed because it is like dating, right? Mm-hmm. And, and as with dating, you shouldn't do that. Um, you really need to find someone who understands your vision and, and sort of will champion what you're doing, you know, and you will find that person. How did the book change, um, with, your agent and with Norton, one thing that I like about your prose is how many layers there are. It reads in this very like engaging and straightforward way. And then there's so many other things to unpack. So how did like, do is, do you see your work with a book as a process of putting additional layers on? Is it that you're like, Um, write a lot and narrow down? That's a good, such a good question, Brianna. So it's the, I think that what has happened each time even with trigger warning is I have had brilliant editors who they're very hands off. They just ask me questions with all three books. I have had editors who very brilliantly sort of ask questions and, and asked, well, what if this, you know, what, what, what would this person think about this? Or like, has this ever happened to this character or like, you know, and really jogged me into expansion of the book and like giving characters like greater motivation for the weird things they're doing. I tend to, I tend to create characters who initially just do things, <laughs> you know, and they make sense to me, but they don't make sense to a reader. Okay. So I've had brilliant editors who made me like kind of delve deep, deeply, okay. you know, and then, um, and, and then I think what happens then is, I cut. So for St. Monkey, I ended up cutting about 140 pages off of it. I cut a whole storyline. I cut a, a major character, two major characters, including my favorite character. And what had happened was Norton felt like it was a book about friendship. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was a book about fulfilling your father's destiny or not, but they felt very strongly that, no, this was a book about friendship. You said you had to take out your favorite character. How did that feel? And how did you kind of come to terms with it? Oh, it didn't feel good. Um, (laughs) What really didn't feel good was making the book about friendship. I mean, I, 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 you know, in retrospect, I think it's a fine, fine book. And I, and I, I think there is still that lingering undertone of this being a book about fulfilling your parents destiny or not you know um and and i do i don't i would never say any of my editors have been wrong necessarily you know it's like i'm i'm the writer i can't see what they're seeing i'm so wed to the book as a writer that i can't be wed to it as a reader as someone else can you know but but when i cut that character and she was just so vivid and explosive i had to tell myself over and over again you know she is just not serving the the new theme 
Hmm. I put her in a document and I told myself that I would put her in another novel. Um, I haven't yet and probably never will because that was three laptops ago, but um, she lives on in my soul. (laughs) Okay. 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 But so the editor, I mean, the publisher really shifted the main theme of your book, you feel like? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. How many months of work was, did you do on it after you signed with Norton? Gosh, years, actually. I had an editor. She put me through like four drafts. And finally, I told my agent, I said, I I just, my kids are getting older. Like, like I'm not doing another draft. And (laughs) my editor, she was Maria Gornicelli, who, um, I don't know if you know Alex Gornicelli on Chopped, but it's her, it's her mother. And she was such a personality, such a vivid personality. And so she, she was ticked. She was ticked off, but she said, okay, congratulations. You're done then. Um, but no, she really put me through some paces and I think the book is ultimately better for it, but I just felt like, you know, one day this book needs to be published. <laughs> <laughs> At some point it has to be done. Yes. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So Grey Wolf is not like, they're not having as big an impact on the book as you feel like Norton did. No. Yeah. And with, with both books, I feel like they kind of have been a more able to sort of digest my initial vision, you know, and, and work with it in a way that I feel like it, it only makes it richer rather than sort of like changing it dramatically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's good. Yeah. And it's a different, uh, there's a different person in charge of Grey Wolf. Yeah. Carmen Jimenez, who is just as wonderful as Fiona. Yeah. I stepped into her boots quite nicely. So when you sold Mother Country to Grey Wolf, can you tell me about the moment that you heard? Um, We only shopped it to Grey Wolf um, because I really loved the, I love the editorial process there. I love the way they handled Mother Country after it came off. So we, we sort of, just shopped it to them first to see if they would be interested and they were and then a deal sort of coalesced so it's marvelous it's really marvelous Um, that's for trigger warning you yes for trigger warning and did you only shop to gray wolf with mother country as well so mother country was kind of an interesting story because i didn't have an agent a friend of mine knew the woman who annie Liu, who was now my agent and just gave it to her and she read it and liked it and kicked it up the chain. So huh. that okay. happened pretty fast to you. Actually, that happened during COVID. And I'll never forget, Fiona called me and she said, I love it, but I can't sell it to my editorial board. Can you do this, this and this? And they were shocked. I did it so fast because it was COVID and my kids were asleep all day until like, you know, 11 o'clock. I just wrote frantically. I changed like in two months. I burned that book down and built it again and they loved it. And they were just shocked at how big of a change I had made. Happy COVID story, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. That's pretty unusual, but okay. So you burned the book down during COVID. Your kids were sleeping till 11, but it's still hard. You know, even people without kids struggle to, you know, yeah, arrange yeah. a book in a few months. So how'd you do it? When I'm in it, I'm in it. And, mm-hmm. and I get in it hard. And so I mean, I think I was writing like five or six hours a day at that point. I'm not, I, I'm at my best when I do that because I feel like sort of at that, at that point of 
having that much time is sort of like the imagination beget the imagination. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm lucky that my kids were older at that point. And so they could sleep till 11. Nobody got up and asked me for juice. When they were little, it was kind of more like, um, well, I had a child who did power naps, thank God. Um, so, <laughs> so I would, you know, I would get in it every day. And then if I hadn't finished by the time she woke up, I, there would just be this nagging part of me that would go back and finish it later. You know, I, I'm just really like, I'm anal about almost nothing else in this life. And anybody would tell you this, like, I, otherwise, I'm an organizational mess. But when I give myself a deadline, it happens. You know what I mean? And I think people are often surprised at like how fast I can turn around a revision, but I just, I just want to get in it and get out. I think part of it too is, especially now there's, there's kind of a lot going on in my personal life. And I just want some of the material is uncomfortable to me right now because I am having a little bit of a crisis and I want to get in there with that material and just be done with it. You know what I mean? Once the book comes out and I'm not having to engage with it in that way, it's so much easier to talk about, you know, like I can go to a reading and someone can ask about a death and I'll be like, yeah, because this is, but when you're in there writing death, that's hard when you're in there writing, you know, children in crisis or, or whatever the, the difficult material is. I think it can be really hard if you're, if you're, if you're out, if your real life isn't totally copacetic while you're writing that, that can be hard. So I like to just get in there and get out. You're a, like pull the bandaid off all at once kind of person. You know, yeah, exactly. Paid for the shortest amount of time. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Are there other ways that your relationship to your work changes after it's been published? Ooh. Um, yeah. Um, I have felt with each book that I had a psychological question I was asking myself. Okay. When I got to the end of the first draft, I always figured it out. Like when I got the end of the first draft of same, I didn't know why I was writing it. And I got to the end and I was like, oh, this is about my dad, you know, or I got to the end of Mother Country and I was like, this is about having a C-section. Um, You know, I got to the end of Trigger Warning and I was like, this is about grief. And I have felt every time that I slayed the demon on that first draft and no longer had to really grapple with it in that way, which okay. makes it so much easier to talk about later. After you published it, did that further change your relationship to it? How did publishing these three books? Yeah. yeah. So I'll give you an instance like, like with Mother Country, um, because it was quite personal. With Mother Country, I felt like there's there's the political part of the novel that is that I knew that there were these slaves in Mauritania. I wanted to bring attention to this issue. Um, it's ongoing. I actually, I went to Mauritania and met with some slaves and anti-slavery activists and just was my mind was blown. But the very personal part of it, I found when I got to the end of the first draft was that both of my kids had been born via C-section. I had wanted a natural birth. I had wanted it really bad. And it took me forever to feel like I was their proper real mother because I had had a C-section. I had failed at the critical moment. After I wrote the first draft, I realized in writing these characters that 
to be a mother is everything that happens after that kid's birth, you know? Um, And then when it went out into the world, I think that that lesson just came back to me like just fourfold because in talking to people about the impact the book had on them. And I heard from like, I heard from people who had been adopted. I, I heard from all kinds of people, but in talking to people, it was like, yeah, you know, it, it, the biology of having a kid is kind of in some ways, the smallest part of it, you know? And so it was, it was really nice to have that like give and take with people and the conversation of having people sort of understand that and then having me understand them and, and yeah, having that be like a resounding sort of area of agreement is really nice. That's Jacinda Townsend, author of Saint Monkey, Mother Country, and soon Trigger Warning. You can find links to all of these books as well as to Jacinda's website in the show notes for this episode. If you liked what you heard today, it would be so, so, so wonderful if you would leave us a review in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If that's too much work, and let's be honest, it probably is, you can just, you know, just give us a five-star rating. No big deal. Just hit those five stars. (laughs) Thanks. Your quote for today is supposedly from Albert Einstein. I'm not entirely sure that's true. But supposedly, he said, the measure of intelligence is the ability to change. Keep going. Keep going.